Tabora Myers is a writer and freelance journalist, formerly of Deadspin, and the author of the book, The End of the Perfect Ten, The Making and Breaking of Gymnastics Top Score, From Nadia to Now. She writes prolifically about gymnastics and other sports from political, cultural, and social angles, and her work has appeared in so, so many outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Vice, and so many more. She also has a truly fantastic substack titled Unorthodox Gymnastics, and I really strongly encourage people to subscribe to it to not only get a roundup of her published pieces, which is helpful because she publishes a ton, but also to get additional analyses only available to subscribers. She is one of those people whose work I really eagerly await, which makes me super duper excited to speak with her today. Devorah, welcome to the end of sport. Thanks so much for having me. So how are you doing in New York City? Um, you know, I think it's okay here right now, but I do think I live in like a bubble. So I really don't know what's going on outside of like my five block radius from my apartment, to mm. be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just stay here. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Um, so although your analyses about other sports are fantastic, and to be clear, you write about much more than just gymnastics, you do mainly focus on gymnastics. So I wanted to ask, how did you get involved in a sport and what spurred you to begin writing about it and analytically from a journalistic perspective? Well, I did gymnastics when I was younger, though I just want to always add the caveat that I was a very low level gymnast, so I wasn't anywhere near the level of talent and ability of the gymnasts I currently write about, right? So it's a completely, it's a completely different world, but I did do gymnastics and I've always loved it. And I, when I was in grad school, you know, I did start to do some writing. I have an MFA in creative writing kids. I don't recommend it. Um, just unless it's funded, unless it's funded, then it's great. Um, for my, if you're going to end up with debt, it's just, it's really not worth it. Um, but anyway, in grad school, I started a blog spot blog called unorthodox gymnastics. Um, cause that was like the blog spot days, like circa 2007. And I started to just put little thoughts up there and, Part of what spurred me to do this, to be perfectly honest, is that I would read everything I could get my hands on about gymnastics and everything that I, most of what I read, I shouldn't say everything, most of what I read in like mainstream media sources was kind of terrible, was kind of dumb, facile. It, you know, people who are writing about it didn't know a lot about gymnastics or tended to assume that their audiences didn't know anything about gymnastics. So I kept it everything at a very like superficial level, you know, and I was, I loved the sport so much. And I was convinced that if like people knew how interesting it was, interesting, not being like positive or negative, like, you know, um, but just interesting that like more people would like, I was very convinced of this. And so I just decided that like, I'll start writing about it, you know, like I'm already doing, you know, professional writing at this point. And so why not just start doing some coverage? I just, you know, decided to start writing it myself, figuring like, hey, I could do at least as good a job, if not better. (laughs) And that was really kind of, you know, it's like in grad school and dumb little shit in my 20s. So (laughs) that was really kind of, kind of what it put, you know, set me off on that path. But like you said, I, you know, didn't write about gymnastics exclusively, certainly not early on, because there just was no opportunity for me to do that. And, um, you know, because like I would pitch stuff to editors and I, you know, when it wasn't an Olympic year and they'd be like, well, it's not, 
the Olympics or, or our audience isn't interested in this, or this is too deep in the weed, like, you know, too far into the weeds. Um, and it was just like, you know, those kinds of things. And obviously on occasion, an editor would give me the go ahead to do something, but it was like very, very few opportunities to write about gymnastics, at least for me initially. Um, and so I just didn't do a lot of that writing. I mean, except on my blog and, you know, and I just wrote about other things. I wrote about religion. I grew up pretty Orthodox, like Jewish. So I had a lot to say there. Um, and I wrote it just about other issues. And when the opportunity would arise, I would then also write something about gymnastics. Um, I didn't really start writing about gymnastics in a, like a focused way, a concentrated way outside of my blog. I mean, cause there I could just do whatever I wanted, but, um, until like 2012 when, um, you know, Tommy Craggs, who was then the editor in chief of Deadspin just really brought me on to do the like London um, 2012 Olympics as a freelancer and just sort of gave me like, like permission to basically do whatever I wanted to do. Um, which was really exciting and also scary, you know, cause like, you know, basically almost all my ideas got approved, which was definitely a new experience for me. <laughs> and so that's sort of, I think what sort of shifted things towards writing more and more about gymnastics, um, you know, getting that opportunity at Deadspin for the London Olympics. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, um, I just kind of curious, um, sort of why do you think 2012 was sort of the year or, or do you think it was just sort of happenstance in the sense that like they, you know, Detsman wanted somebody who was really knowledgeable, a lot of sports or kind of like, do you think that was a particular turning point or kind of moment in like public understanding of gymnastics or was it kind of just more um, happenstance? I think it's probably just more happenstance. I had published a one-off piece with them or what I thought was going to be a one-off piece with them early in um, 2012, around March, about the American Cup. And that was it. Like, I didn't expect anything more to come of it because um, up until that point, all my gymnastics writing that I had done had been like very one-off, you know, like one piece and then never again. So, um so yeah, so you know, then I had this, like I mentioned, I had a, a blog, which was a complete and total eyesore. It was like, I don't understand how I chose these colors. It was really ugly and impossible to read. I'm surprised that people read it. Um, but I had this, you know, um in the blog I had written some piece about how like um artistry is a coded language for body type in gymnastics, which is, you know, something that wasn't a revolutionary idea in you know, gymnastics fan circles. It was something that, you know, was talked a lot about on message boards and things like that, where I never participated. I lurked, um, but, you know, wasn't a conversation that was being had outside of the fandom, you know? And so I wrote this like blog about, you know, in response, I think to something that Sean Johnson had said at the time, but like I wrote a blog about like how artistry is coded language for body type and artistic gymnasts are thin, flexible, right. You know, and that's, <laughs> that's a very um narrow perhaps not an, an inaccurate definition of of artistry is like your thinness and your flexibility artistry is you know so much more than that so um so i just wrote that and um you know tommy had reached out to me and said these you know um you know we had already had like some i'd already had some dead spin connection and he told me that he had like read that blog and asked me to do it again rewrite it you know expand it for dead spin um, and I, and he then just sort of was like, Hey, do you want to do like all of this stuff for, um, 
for the Olympics. And, you know, and also I had, I guess I had also on my end now that I think back on it, had started to make a greater effort around this time because like the Olympics were coming up and I was more established um, professionally as a writer in 2012 than I was in 2008, which is just when I finished grad school. Um, yeah, I was making a real effort, I guess, you know, to really try to write gymnastic stories. I early in late 2011, I had a piece in Slate about gymnastics. So I was sort of starting to like pick up and, you know, and in the run up to the Olympics, there's just obviously more opportunity in general. So I can't speak to any differences between 2008 and 2012. I think for me, mostly 2008, I just finished grad school. I spent that summer you know, in Costa Rica, Nicaragua. So I wasn't trying. <laughs> I was, I just made sure I got back to the United States right before the start of the Olympics. That was the priority, but I wasn't pitching stories, you know? So, so maybe, maybe I could have gotten started on this road earlier had I not wanted to go travel with my friends for a month. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you mean you wanted a break after your intensive graduate program? <laughs> yeah. Intensive. It was like classes at night. Because I, I did the new school MFA as opposed to the Columbia MFA. So like less, it was the same, mostly the same professors, but like half the tuition, still too much. And I would work during the day. Um, like I wouldn't say I had a full-time job. I had a, you know, a lot of hours during the day and then I would take classes at night. I, yeah, I was exhausted after two years of that. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that's, um, thank you for kind of detailing some of that history. And I know for someone who hasn't sort of been involved in, um, kind of doing public writing for all that long, it's really interesting to hear about people's trajectory and sort of how, um, how I think journalists in particular sort of make a name for themselves. Um, so thank you so much for doing that. Um, and, and we just have so many, I just have so many questions for you today about your work. So we'll go ahead and get down to it. Um, you wrote a really superb piece for Defector, which we will absolutely be linking in the show notes, and it is titled, Women's Gymnastics is Blasting into the Future, but its scoring code is stuck in the past. And in it, you detail the low score that Simone Biles received for her debut of the Yurchenko double pike at the U.S. Classic this past May. Though loads of gymnasts have endured having their new maneuvers lowballed, this instance with Biles sparked a litany of hot takes on Twitter and in sports media about how the low score was evidence of the sport's anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. Now, in your piece, you said, and here I am quoting you, uh, quote, so why did this particular valuation of the move trigger a freakout so profound that people proclaimed FIG had actively banned her skills? Some of it has to do with Biles' own history, and some of it has to do with the sport's struggle to contain and quantify her genius. But it's mostly about how confused and conflicted women's gymnastics remains about moving beyond its fussy and antiquated roots. Now, can you walk us through what you said here um, in your analysis in the piece, and also sort of how can we acknowledge that racism exists in the sport, but that that is not the whole answer here? Um, I'm going to try to address that all in the order you just asked, but I'm not sure I'll be able to. But no worries. It, it, I'll ask follow-up questions if need be. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It's I probably lot. no, no. It's a lot. <laughs> well, and just in terms of you know, just addressing the freak out, sort of also going back to what I said before, one of the things you know when you know she does that magnificent vault and like like everyone else, I was super excited about it. You know, if you love gymnastics, like how could you not? be thrilled when you see something like that, right? Like just from a pure, like love of the sport, like this is the kind of thing you 
like jump out of your seat when you see right so that's just under like a sort of childlike joy level there's that you know my reaction um you know because the part of me that loves gymnastics is is a child you know um and i put all this like layers of intellectualism on top of what is just very much like i like being upside down when i was a kid um you know you know you can make it sound so smart and then sometimes it's just like at the at its root that's what it is um and and so I, you know, I read all these stories. I wasn't there present for when it happened. I wasn't reporting on the classics and everyone, you know, started to say that like, okay, you know, they'd, they'd heard from a provisional value from the women's technical committee of 6.6, meaning it wasn't official. It's not official until you do it at the competition and it gets named for you. And they thought that Tom Forster, the high performance director and Simone thought that it should be 6.8. And so I see this in all these stories and I see zero attempts at least initially, maybe I missed one. So if I, please forgive me if you did it, if you are a journalist who did attempt to explain it and I just didn't see your story. And I'm talking about like now the mainstream, not like the gymnastics writers who, who do, who are on it. I saw zero attempt to explain it, to say why 6.8 was preferable to 6.6, right? I just see this like 6.8, 6.6 is horrible. 6.8 is right. And no attempts to explain justify you know and in, in my piece i end up definitely coming down the side of 6.8 but like you still have to explain it you still have to get there so that was sort of my initial response of like okay like there's something what's going on here like they're everyone's saying that this is wrong but no one's trying to explain how it's wrong they're um and they're refusing to sort of grapple with gymnastics right you know it's, um, you know, it's putting a lot of, you know, important narratives on it without sort of at least trying to understand gymnastics on its own terms before you apply other lenses. Right. Um, and so that was kind of like my thing of just like, OK, well, like, let me go talk to some code of point experts, because I definitely didn't know by looking at the two marks which one it should have been. Right. Um, and it wasn't and it was being treated as this obvious thing as well. And I'm like how is this obvious? Like, I know a lot about gymnastics. I don't know as much as, as much as some other people, but I definitely know more than the people who are writing these things. And I'm like, how is it so obvious to them? And I can't make heads or tails of it. You know, I don't know. Right. And so that was just more like this sense of like, okay, let me start talking to people. And I started to talk to people, you know, you know, people, there are some, you know, Twitter, Twitter in general can be like this toxic cesspool, but I will say that there are also some incredibly intelligent people on Twitter who I've been so fortunate to get to know over the years and people who know so much about gymnastics and so much about gymnastics history. So I like jump into DMs and I'm like, okay, tell me, tell me what you think, like explain it to me. And then I, you know, consulted some other people outside of Twitter to sort of, sort of figure out like where, what felt appropriate, where I stood how bad was 6.6 versus 6.8, you know, like that kind of thing. And then, yeah. And so now, and so then, but like, obviously it's not just, you know, how you get to a score. It's not just simply a gymnastics matter, as we know, it's like all these other forces come into play. So it's not that the other arguments were inappropriate. It's just that you had to first get a solid basis in gymnastics. And then you can start to say, okay, here are all these gymnastics reasons why it should, like someone could say it should be 6.6, but like, we know that there are, you know, we know how racism works, right? We know how anti-blackness works. We know how sexism works. It's now, it's like it's always operating under the surface, right? So you can come up with this perfectly reasonable gymnastics 
argument for 6.6, but you can't prove that there was only reasonable gymnasticsness. I mean, first of all, they're, you know, probably not reasonable in gymnastics because it's, it's a little irrational at times, but, but you can't just say that that is the only way they got to 6.6, right? Because that's just, you know, you can't ignore, you can't separate um, Simone the gymnast from Simone the black athlete, right? Like they're just, you know, she's, she's a black woman and therefore that always has to be part of the analysis. So that was just kind of how I thought my way through it. It's like, okay, let me first understand the arguments for either 6.6 or 6.8. I got many more arguments in favor of 6.8 from the people I spoke to. Though people would be like, okay, I like six, like some people were like, yeah, like I wouldn't give it 6.6, but 6.6, I see how they got to 6.6. Um, it's a little bit low, you know, it's kind of a thing, but no one, no one was saying like, this is a travesty. It was just more like, I think it, you know, if the range is 6.6 to 6.8, I would give it 6.8 you know, and explain why. And it's all like, it's just a little nerdy. And I go into the piece, but I think you can't, I think you can't get away from getting into these weeds. If you're going to make a case that the score is too low, right? You have to explain. And so these, these just, you know, not to be too, too nerdy and to, to get too weedy here, but all these marks are contextual. They're not like an intrinsic value of the skill, right? Cause these, these, you know, Things get upgraded, things get downgraded, like all the vaults are going to be downgraded in the next code for various reasons. So really, it's about its relation to other vaults. And the problem with this vault was that there was no precedent for it in the woman's code, right? Where her beam dismount, and that's a big piece of it, is that the beam dismount, the discourse around the beam dismount in 2019, when that was low vault, informs how this how people reacted to the vault valuation, right? I don't think you would have had the same reaction if her beam dismount in 2019 hadn't been low vault. I don't think people would have gone quite so worked out, right? Um, so because in, in 2019, the beam dismount was very, very, very clearly low vault. Like there's, and because there was an easy precedent to follow, like double tuck, full twisting double back, double twisting double back and you could see like what the pattern should have been and you see how when it came to Biles's dismount they deviated from the pattern to make it too low right so that was easy so people talked about it in their stories but they didn't but this time around it was not clear there was no precedent you could be like use try to use the women's code or you can look to the men's code for guidance but it was definitely a mess you know and, and then, so that's kind of, again, sorry if I'm rambling a bit, but like, that's kind of where I started. But then I was thinking about like, well, well, why? Like, okay, if you could choose between 6.6 and 6.8, why would you, why would you fall on the side of 6.8? Like 6.6, why did they go that way? Um, and then if you think about, like you mentioned when you were asking, the, asking like, I think four questions, that there were other gymnasts whose skills have also been low ball, right, over the years, you know? And that was the other thing that was missing, I think, in a lot of the pieces was contextualizing Simone in gymnastics history, right? That, you know, if you read those pieces, you would have assumed that Simone was, this, Simone was the first gymnast to see her eponymous skill undervalued, which is unfortunately not the case. But but and it doesn't and and it having happened to other people doesn't make it okay that it's happened to Simone. But you need that information to understand what are the forces at play, you know, here because like if it's if you don't know that, then you just assume it's a Simone, it's a Simone only problem, and it's just not. And there's a problem in the sport, especially in the women's side of the sport, with a sort of discomfort around, you know, increasing difficulty, increasing uh, ac acrobatic complexity that's been there 
for 50 years, if not longer. Right. You know, and so I use I know that Georgia, Georgia Servant has been on the um, podcast. I use her amazing new book to sort of lay out a historical case of um, of like what is going what was going on there in terms of like, you know, you have like Olga Korba comes along with her new skills. The Women's Technical Committee actively tries to ban them, right? This is back in the 1970s, right? And she, she even, and Olga is even, even kind of threatens to retire if they do, right? And she was the, she, she wasn't the, she certainly wasn't the Simone Biles of her day because she didn't have that kind of win record, right? And there's, um, but she was the most famous gymnast in the world, and she was particularly popular in the West. So, you know, banning her skills and then she her retiring would have been huge, a huge problem for gymnastics. So, you know, this is not the first time, you know, Simone in 2019 and 2021 is not the first time that the Women's Technical Committee has been at odds with the sport's biggest star. But they, there's this discomfort around women doing these acrobatic, risky elements, and only some of it is about safety. <laughs> Only a very and only a very little part of that overall sort of concern. There is this concern about the direction of the sport. There's this constant fretting over the direction of women's gymnastics, and which doesn't exist is certainly not to the same degree in men's gymnastics, where it's just sort of this like straight line of increasing difficulty. Every you know, we want the guys to keep doing more flips, more twists, more flips, more twists, and there isn't like a lot of hand wringing over that, you know. The way that in women's gymnastics, all these sort of technical leaps forward that the women have taken over the years have been accompanied by this sense of like, are we losing artistry or, or femininity in a previous generation? As you know, artistry is like become this great word that can just mean anything you want it to mean. You know, it means body type. It means femininity. And so, you know, like, it, so are we, you know, this is women's artistic gymnastics, like what is going on here? Are we losing our way? And obviously there's a lot of sexism right there. The idea that the women are doing skills, approaching, you know, getting closer to the men when it comes to certain, you know, acrobatics, you know, elements, they can't approach them in all areas just because the sports have been, you know, they're two separate sports, you know, with different events, but, you know, getting, improving their tumbling, improving vaulting, getting close to what the men can do. And in some cases matching them, that would be the case. Simone Biles can match the guys and tumbling and vaulting certainly. Right. Um, and, and there's this discomfort around that as well, you know? Um, so that was kind of what I was looking into, like all the forces that gave us a 6.6 versus a 6.8 or the forces that gave us a too low value in the beam dismount. And then obviously racism is a big one of them, right? A big part of that because, you know, as I detailed, you know, some um, particularly unkind things have been said about Simone Biles by people who are powerful inside the International Gymnastics Federation, you know? Um, and so you, that's also, you can't say that, you can't look at her valuations and say, well, it's only gymnastics or it's only this sort of sexist history that is contributing. There's also, obviously, race is playing a role. I would imagine it would have to be. So I sort of laid that out. But I can't, what I can say is what, you know, if we're looking at these are all like causes or, you know, potential causes, I can't say like how much to weight each one. Right. Like, that's just not for me to say. I can't say which is the more important one. So what I just want to do was to sort of put it all out there, lay it all out and, you know, paint a picture of a 
institution that is, you know, certainly uncomfortable with black athletes, um, uncomfortable with Simone's dominance, um, uncomfortable with progress in many respects, you know, and say here's, you know, and has this very, um, antiquated mandate that they're still kind of trying to hold on to in this small way being a feminine appropriate sport as Georgia points out like you know in in her book like that was the mandate you know from the beginning and that has never fully left the conversation um and that was just kind of what I was trying to do with that piece of like explain the gymnastics things explain some history explain all the forces and then reader can decide, you know, and, and, and obviously Simone gets, you know, like I said at the end, like I can't make tell, say what is the most um, important thing in my story that that's like Simone gets to decide really what it's about, but I can just sort of put out, lay out the arguments and just say like, here, draw your own conclusions, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And, and I, and I would love to, um, kind of get into the weeds a little bit because you do that so well. And as someone who, as you know, is still having problems kind of wrapping my head around gymnastics. Um, so I I thank you so much for your patience and kind of correcting me when I've understood things wrong. And I was sort of wondering, and, and I think, so like you talk about the antiquated roots and how they're fussy and how it's sort of like a, uh, an, an org- the FIG, the International Governing Body for Gymnastics, how it's sort of like an organization that looks back and not necessarily forward or even at the athletes. And I, I was wondering, you know, what does that mean when it comes to like the scores and scoring? What does it mean when a move is unprecedented? Because I think that's something that I, I don't really understand um, so when someone debuts a new move, like, what does that mean? You mentioned there's like a difference between the women's, how it's handled in the, in the women's versus the men's gymnastics. So, so what, yeah, what does it mean about the fact that she debuted a new move, okay. um, for when it comes to the scoring? I'm going to use her beam dismount her, her, you know, her low ball beam dismount for 2019 as an example of a move while it is astounding. And I never thought I'd see her do it in competition has a precedent, meaning that you have a double back dismount, right? And then you have a full twisting double back dismount, right? So there's this progression. Now, no one thought that she, that anyone would do a double twisting double off the beam, but you see that there's a pattern there. And so you can kind of look at it and be like, okay, well, I can figure out what the next one is. I've established, I think it goes, I think the double back now scores in gymnastics start a at the easiest and then go run down the alphabet as they increase in difficulty and complexity. So I think that it's, you know, it's been a long month. So I, I had it correct in the story. I know that I wrote it correctly there, but like now, you know, I might not be remembering it correctly because my you know brain is slightly fried. But I believe that double tuck is a D. Um, and then the full twisting double back is a G. So you see how many letters it jumps. And so what the expectation was that it would be... Um, it would be an I or a J on balance beam. The very least an I, but probably a J in terms of we're going to follow that pattern of upgrading. So that's that. there's a precedent there. Like we have a double back, we have a full twisting double back. You can figure it out, right? Like it's it's shocking that she could do it, you know, because we. I definitely don't think that we ever expected it. But now you go to the vault, your Chanko double pike, right? Um, you have, you know, your Chanko for people who are you know not familiar is that round off onto the board, back handspring, onto the table and then the flips, the twist off, right? Whatever you do. So in the women's code, 
we have tons of Yurchenkos, and Yurchenko is one of the, I mean, it was, it was um, introduced by Natalia Yurchenko, the, the style, the approach in 1982. And it's one of the few sort of skills or techniques that has gone from the women to the men. Because most of the time, it's like the women are doing skills that had previously been innovated by the men. And when they come into the men, onto the women's side, they get a new name, right? But typically, that's the direction things that go, which, you know, that's a whole other, I just wrote about that in a whole other place. But, um, but this is one of those few skills that's moved from the women to the men as a technique. And obviously, when she did it, I believe when she did it in 1982, the very first one, she did, I think, a tucked one with a full twist. Um, but, you know, and then obviously, and then start also competed a, a layout one with a full twist. So, you know, she, um, and she's a super impressive gymnast and, you know, I wrote about her in my newsletter cause I, I really do, I really do admire her, but, um, but all of the Yurchenko style vaults that have been done up until this point have been twisting vaults, right? So you would go, you would hit, you do back handspring, you would do like one twist off a full twist, double twist, two and a half twist. People have tried triple twist and in the women's side and has, has not, has not worked um, so far in competition one day, maybe, but, um, but, but there's a different thing to do the double salto off. Of it. It's not this, it's, it's not like, how do you, how do you like sort of judge the progression from a twisting vault to a double flipping vault? Right. And so, so that's where sort of the, the conundrum comes from, right? Like, whereas with the beam dismount, her while it was incredibly difficult you can work out a progression and like they should have been able to look at what they had already done with the double talk and the full twisting double talk and they should have been able to be like oh it should be a j right like we we keep you know there was a precedent there here it's like well do we just look at like like how do we do this you know and um spencer barnes the balance beam situation really lays this out really well in his piece so i'm really actually just borrowing from what he said to be honest i just want to make that clear but um but like you know he was like asked like do we treat this double flipping fault the same like we just you do the same pattern of like upgrades i think you know i think a double twisting your chanko i believe is a 5.4 or two and a half twisting is 5.8 um then when we like so how would you sort of then work off of that to get to your uh, to your chanko double pike but you can also make the argument that you really can't work off of that because like d- twisting and flipping vaults shouldn't re- are not really the same. This is a whole order of magnitude greater in terms of difficulty. So like, how do you handle that? So that's what I mean by unprecedented. So, you know, I believe that they probably went and looked at the men's code because the men, d- the men do have double salto because we only in the women's code prior to Simone and still the case because unfortunately she wasn't able to compete it in Tokyo is that there is only one other double salto vault, which is a handspring double front, which was first done by Elena Protonova in 1999 on the old vaulting horse, which is, inc- which is crazy when you think about it. Cause that vaulting horse was not, was very narrow, <laughs> very easy to miss your hands. So, but that's the only double salto vault. And it's a, obviously a completely different entry, right? You know, running, jumping the board, handspring, very hard to drive power that way. One of the advantages of the Yurchenko technique is that it makes it a lot easier to pick up, you know, power. Um, it's probably why it first emerged on the women's side, because, you know, round up back handspring on floor is a very efficient way to pick up, you know, power, speed, acceleration for your, your, your acrobatic elements. It's why most tumbling passes open that way, you know? Um, so, 
So that's the only other one. So like, what do you do? Like, how do you relate the Proto Nova to the Yurchenko double pike, right? So that's why I mean by no precedent is that, so they went into the men's, you know, the men's code has multiple like double salto vaults, you know, so you can look at what's going on there, right? Um, so yeah, sorry, that was a lot of weedy stuff, but I think that's kind of why I reacted. Like I was a little surprised where everyone reacted in like sort of in the mainstream writing about this as though like the 6.8 is obvious because it's shit it's not obvious to anyone really you know um like <laughs> spencer worked out like a whole like wrote a whole long blog post about how this could be worked out so i don't know how the beam dismount stuff was obvious though you know you need to know very little i mean you followed what i said about the beam dismount but but you but like i could barely follow what i said about the vault you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. And I think, and I think, and I think what you pointed out that there's, there's right. Then in order to really, um, speak sort of confidently about a sport and sort of make, um, analyses about a sports developments, right. That like, it, it is really key to understand how the sport actually functions. Right. And, and I think you, you said that very well, both in your piece and, and in, and in your earlier answers, right. That really understanding the context and understanding the sport, especially, I mean, I don't know that many sports that well, and I certainly don't do not know gymnastics that well, but it's very, it's very complicated. Right. So mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's not like a race where there are sort of certain rules and, and, you know, um, I mean, there absolutely are certain rules, but you know, it isn't so much about like who just simply finishes first, right? There are a lot, a lot of more many rules. And so I think your answer about how crucial it is to understand this context is, is really key here. And I think, and, and I, and I could be wrong, but I think too, with so many more people paying attention to, um, to sports. I, I think pe- many more people are, are paying attention to sports or taking a lot more inspiration from sports and not just like sports fans, but kind of people in the cultural sphere and on social media where they're kind of, you know, they're understanding that athletes and black athletes in particular and, and brown ones too are really using sports as a way to advocate certain messages and yeah. to kind of assert their agency, right? So people are sort of primed and have been primed for several years to pick up on on that stuff. And so I think it seems to me that it's sort of easier for people to kind of run away with kind of more of a snap judgment um, mm-hmm. about a sport that maybe they're not that familiar with. And then, of course, it's also gymnastics, which has been under the spotlight for many years because of all the mm-hmm. abuse and really harmful stuff. Um, yeah. But th- at least that's kind of how it appears to me. Yeah, and I, I mentioned I re- referred to a tweet in the piece by um, definitely one of my smart gymnastics Twitter friends about like if understanding the rules is fundamental to challenging their fairness, right? You have because there was so people really if they really want to advocate on behalf of Simone getting a higher valuation, which I I mean I, I like I argued I think pretty successfully that six point eight was better. You have to you have to grapple with the rules because also the ways in which racism is going to manifest is going to manifest through those systems. So you have to understand those systems so you can see deviations, right? You can understand when how come we expected it to go one way but it's going somewhere else. Like you see these, devi- but you have to understand the system to notice a deviation, you know, from a pattern, right? You have to understand these things and. You know, Simone has been around now. She made her senior debut in 2013. She's been around for a while. Um, I really would have, I really hope that you know, people step up their game and covering, you know, the sport. Like she, she is reason 
enough even if you don't normally cover gymnastics, that you should really learn about gymnastics if you're covering her. You know what I'm saying? Like she, and that's, and that's also like, I feel like, you know, this is her sport. Like this is a way of, I, I also say respecting her, you know, is to know her sport. And um, because like she has, you know, given her like most of her life and her time, her waking hours <laughs> to this, to this activity. And she's, undoubtedly the best the greatest at it and like you know you you i feel like you'd better appreciate her greatness if you understood the sport you know um then then you'd really like even be more excited about how great she is absolutely totally agree and actually that's a really good segue to the next question which is um, about sort of paying attention to what athletes are saying and and really um, understanding their actions for what they actually mean Um, And in particular, you wrote a really good piece that um, relates to what I'm very interested in, in terms of Cold War tensions and how stereotypes, sort of East-West stereotypes still impact sports today. And and we've talked about this in the podcast, including with Georgia Servan, who who you've mentioned. Um, And it it is clear that when, when we see the Cold War still influencing sports today, that it usually just ends up harming athletes. And you wrote this truly fabulous piece for 538 that, again, we'll link in the show notes, that has honestly given me more reasons to hope for genuine athlete solidarity and support than much of what we've seen during the pandemic outside of, you know, organizing efforts and advocacy within sort of U.S. football and basketball. And that is how American and Russian gymnasts were really actively supporting and cheering for one another during the Tokyo Olympic Games. Um, And in particular, um, I mean, there were many instances, but one was that Simone Biles was cheering on Russian gymnast Angelina Melnikova on the balance meet. And then she went on, and then Melnikova went on to offer support to Biles for withdrawing from the all-around competition in a press conference, which is a very public way of showing your support. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, in this piece, you also noted how male gymnasts were, were supporting each other. And you really brilliantly said, quote, these kids don't have the time for baby boomers 20th century politics. The Cold War is really over. Now, could you explain the camaraderie and the mutual support that you witness in Tokyo and maybe how it compares to prior incidences, sorry, prior instances during the Cold War? And and maybe why do you think we kind of see an uptick in this really public solidarity right now? Well, I'm not the Cold War history expert that you are, so I'm going to... No, that's fine. You you know enough. (laughs) Okay, so um, definitely, I mean, my knowledge of the Cold War is very much through this gymnastics lens. Um, Well, first of all, I just thought it was adorable, and um, how often do I get to write fuzzy, heartwarming stories um, when I'm covering gymnastics? So I just sort of noticed it and was like, texted my editor at 538, Sarah Ziegler, who's awesome, and I was just like, can I do this? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and I had, you know, um, and I had previous conversations with Kathy Johnson Clark, who gave some of her experiences with Soviets in there. So I knew that she had some very lovely stories to tell. So I was like, okay, like, I know what I'm, I like very quickly came together. I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I love it when that happens. Cause sometimes it does not new brain stuff doesn't come together that quickly. Um, so <laughs> where it's like, okay, I don't have a lot of times. So I don't have a lot of time to figure this out, but you know, in terms of this sort of camaraderie, I think, you know, it's been evident for some time. I don't think it's, you know, been as on full display, um, 
now, like, you know, as it was at, in Tokyo, which was really lovely. But like, you know, you would see, you know, the athletes sort of interacting with one another on social media, you know, um, complimenting each other, liking each other's photos. You had this sort of sense that they um, like they liked each other. They didn't hate each other. Right. Certainly. Um, which is, you know, sort of that Cold War you know, um, framing, right. That the Russians, the Americans, Soviets, you know, but uh, Russians, Americans hate each other. They want to, you know, they want to win, you know, and that's, you know, I don't know how true that's ever truly been because also like, you know, after the 92 Olympics, I think certainly after 96 and 2000, like, you know, the Russians, the American, the Russian gymnasts would go and do some tours, you know, they would participate in shows together. So there was already like a lot of um, interaction. It just was a little more behind the scenes. I think social media sort of enables it to just um, be more fully on display. Um, So I think, you know, there's that part of it, like, you know, the reason I brought up Got, went into Kathy Johnson Clark's um, experience with the Soviets in the 70s and the 80s is because I don't think it was ever truly as, as you know, as hostile as I think, at least between the gymnast, as people want it to be. That narrative didn't serve the athletes. It served some, some other agendas, right? But it didn't serve the athletic agenda. And obviously, you know, they were, you know, political props they were used as political props on both sides by the americans use them as political props and obviously the soviets use their athletes and you know everyone used it was you know this was a proxy war in the cold war a proxy battleground i mean so obviously you know officials above like right above you know the athletes in some cases there's a lot of respect for relation to the coaching and the, and the judging was also implicated in all this sort of political maneuvering um so you can't like pretend that like this framing like it was completely false, but I just don't think it would ever ring as true for the athletes themselves. Um, and like, I don't know, like, you know, Simone is, from what I can tell, first of all, like, is a pretty well-liked figure across the, you know, across the gymnastics world. I'm sure there are certainly people who don't like her, but, you know, no one ever has, you know, no one ever has unanimous approval, of course. But, you know, I think she's a, you know, she's a really, she's, she's hard not to like, you know, like she's a, she's a, you know, seems like a kind, generous friend, you know, very supportive of, you know, her, her teammates. So like, she's a good person and she's also the greatest of all time. Like, it's almost like the good person is the key part and the greatest of all time is the bonus. It's the gravy, right? Like, but she's well liked and, um, and obviously she is very supportive of others and they've been supportive of her. Like I referenced, you know, and you've seen this before, also just like the way that I remember everyone sort of in 2012, um, you know, the sort of camaraderie or at least this in brief interaction between American Ali Raisman and Russia, Russian Ali Mustafina, which led to very disturbing fan fiction from what I, I've never read it, but there was a lot of disturbing fan fiction on Tumblr that I I hope has dis. I hope the internet has swallowed whole. Um, so, um, but there was like there they, they seem to genuinely like each other and or at least like respect one another. I don't know how I can't like you know speculate how people feel inside their heart, but just it just became there's just too many data points to just think that it's completely, completely these are just completely isolated incidents. Like you just can point to one thing after the other, and like Alia being asked who's the greatest gymnast of all time in a video of the olympic channel and like it seemed at least maybe that maybe they edited out a lot of hesitation i doubt it but she seemed to answer pretty quickly that it was 
Simone Biles, right? Like, you know, she has had no trouble acknowledging that. And in the past, when she's had interviews and they've, I, I you know, Luba has this great site, um, Gymnovosti, where she does a lot of translations of, you know, stories in the Russian media into English. So this is like one of the way, one of the reasons we actually have some awareness of what the Russian gymnasts are saying very soon after they said it is because of her site. But I'm, so I'm like recalling, I think I'm recalling this correctly, but she has at times in the past, you know, when Simone's, you know, um, WADA met like WADA medical file with her, her TUE and the fact that, you know, she had, you know, was on, had a TUE for ADHD medication was released. There was a lot of stories in the Russian media. You know, there was a lot, there was a lot of negative stuff in the Russian media about like doping and things like that, you know, and some people made negative comments. And from what I recall reading a, a translation of an interview from a few years ago, again, it's a little, I'm not hundred percent sure, but like Alia really wouldn't sort of, you know, didn't take the bait on those questions, you know? So, so there it's, it's, it seems real. It seems real. I don't know how long it's going to last, you know, and, and certainly the rhythmic reaction to rhythmic, Russia losing the rhythmic gymnastic gold medal has been not the same as what's happening in artistic gymnastics. <laughs> um, but yeah, it seems, it just seems like they get along and um, because they're how many, like they have more in common, like how many people in the world can do what they do, you know? who understand what that kind of training is like. It's a very um, unique experience. Let's just put it that way. I, it's not something that I would know because not with my level five, level six gymnastics. So I have any idea what it was like to train that hard. <laughs> Never did it in my life. So, um, so I have no idea what that experience is like, but they know what the other, what they're going through. And I also want to add, when I wrote that story, it, there hadn't yet been beam finals, beam event finals, but like you also saw the reaction of Simone to Guan Chen Chen winning the beam golds and how happy she was and, and Suni Lee as well. So it's not just, you know, like it, it, I think, you know, there are perhaps more barriers to communication maybe between the Americans and the Chinese gymnasts because like a lot of the Russian gymnasts, they do okay. Like they can get some, you know, I'm not sure like how good. It, either size English is. And, you know, we should also note that like, how good is, how good is the Americans Russians? Like Russian, I don't speak any Russian, right? Like sort of the expectation that these other athletes should know English. I just want to like point that out. That's a weird expectation, right? But like the Russian, a lot of the Russians, like Milnikova does speak some English, I think pretty well, like she's working on it. So like that also eases communication as well. Like, you know, you know, taking down language barriers, social media, Google Translate, like all these sort of tools. Like one of the things that Kathy talked about was that like they in the 70s and 80s, they like would try to like communicate through body language, you know, and face, you know, like, and that's really hard to do that when you just don't know the other person's language and you don't have these sort of tools to sort of circumvent that, um, which I think we have now, you know, as, you know, terrible as, maybe our tech monopolies are, I, I do appreciate Google Translate. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie. I use it quite a bit. So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. And I know I think this is, I have a kind of a few follow-up comments. I mean, I think to go back to what you started with, with sort of um, Kathy's comments about the Cold War, I mean, and I mentioned this to you via DM, is that, I mean, in some of my, like, interviews with Hungarian athletes, I mean, 
I, I definitely went in with the assumption that, for example, after 1956, when there's the, you know, the Hungarian Revolution and the Soviets crush it, and then there's like this huge blood in the water match at the at, that's that's a water polo game between the Hungarians and Soviets at the 56 Olympics that ends up kind of really splashing all over the news. And, you know, I would ask athletes, you know, how did they feel about Russian players and whenever they would compete against them? And I mean, a lot of them didn't hold like any particular anim- animosity against the Soviets when like you would think that for athletes from a country that was like horrifically invaded by the Soviets yeah. and that revolution was crushed when it was like their chance to be like a either a more reformed socialist country or a democratic one that you would think that th- that that would from an american perspective you would think that that would kind of carry more weight in their minds but more more of them than i thought were very understanding of the fact that you know athletes from the soviet union are facing the same things that we're going through like you said we share more in common than maybe th- than maybe there are differences, um, and and a lot of them, a lot of the athletes um, like smuggled goods with Soviet athletes, East German athletes. Again, even though um, there there a lot of people project a lot of tensions amongst them in terms of like interblock politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think what you said about Kathy is really important. And even if, for example, people didn't speak the same language, right? They do have a lot of similarities. They're all working towards a lot of the the same similar goals. And and I think what I what I really like about these um, these examples that you that you that you pulled together in this argument that you made is that in, in other sports it's, we don't necessarily see that and and I've tweeted tweeted about this a fair lot but you know like I really dislike the fact that like Lily King who is an American um, Olympic breaststroker she very famously p- plays mind games and she's very upfront about that and okay I guess that's her race strategy. But then, you know, her like finger wagging at the the Russian breaststroker for, you know, doping and all the stuff and like kind of athletes taking it out against athletes, even though it's really about the systems and the political and cultural mm-hmm. systems under which they work. I mean, you know, that, you know, being an athlete in Russia, like, yes, you can get more um, financial and institutional support than you can get from the U.S., but like you also are living under entirely different circumstances and different pressures. Um, and it, it wouldn't take too much for an athlete to kind of step back and like think about that a little bit and kind of imagine about what it might be like for athletes in a different country rather than kind of just blame the individual athlete mm-hmm. for the systemic uh, circumstance that they're under. So this is a, long, a, a rambly sort of response to kind of what you're highlighting and that I think this is really significant. And it's also significant because you know, from an American perspective, there's this kind of what we call like propaganda that tells us that sports are like an automatically unifying thing, right? That it brings people together under solidarity, when in reality doesn't always do that and actually creates a lot of tensions. But what you show is that like it can do that and that athletes can decide like on their own to make that happen. And I think that's what's so powerful about um this analysis that you, that you made and what these athletes are doing. I think that's just why it makes it so powerful. Yeah. And like the, you know, reacting sort of to what you said about Lily King, it's, you know, very like almost like neoliberal response to blame individuals for the behavior systems. Right. Um, like what are your options, you know, if you're a Russian athlete, you know, and you need to stay on the national team and keep your funding. Like, you know, um, your, your choices are very constrained, right? Like, are you, going to you know you, you know like 
I don't know. Again, like I don't know the inner workings and all the details of, you know, the, the doping, the alleged doping schemes. But like, I also don't think that in those situations for those athletes, there was a tremendous amount of free, free will and free choice, you know, um, to, to like, you know, and I also hate the term clean sport. Like, you know, there's like this purity sense to it, like clean sport versus like, you know, like, you know, it's so vague and it's all, I mean, it goes to this idea of pure and impure, right? Like we're pure, they're impure. And, you know, like where it's like, also there's a, as we know, there's some arbitrariness to what's on the ban list. And as we've all seen with like Shikari, you know, and what happened to her and her not being able to run because of weed, you know, this idea of what's on the ban list is on the ban list. So it's against the rules, but it's not like a, it's not a marker of if you abstain, you are a more moral person, you know, it's just on the ban list, you know, like, so in like 2000, you know, for for gymnastics fans, the most famous example of like, just sort of the system, the doping system fucking a gymnast is Andrea Radikon, right? Like when she takes the cold medi- medication from the Romanian team doctor and it had pseudoephedrine in it, which was then banned and then it was unbanned and now it's banned again, but the dose, the, the, the dosing requirements is higher. So you can't really look at that and say, oh, this is a good person. This is a bad person. Like, cause these rules are kind of arbitrary. If this, it's not like, you know, it's not like murder, which stays illegal, you know? from one generation to the next it's it's all you know which is immoral like unless obviously you know not it's always immoral but like i think we we make some allowances unfortunately for like armed agents of the state committing murder um but it's always immoral it's like from generation to generation it these doping rules aren't like that they're not like this is a bad this is bad this is good and this is their constants they're just like oh this is banned right now it might stay banned it might get unbanned it might be banned but at a higher concentration right which is what they do with pseudoephedrine so they so in you know if she tested if andrea radicon 16 year old andrea radicon tested now under the current guidelines she wouldn't have lost her gold medal so how can you make a moral argument out of that you know um, absolutely Sorry, I have I have rants about doping. <laughs> no, that's excellent, and I did I didn't know of that case. So so thank you so much for bringing that up because that is precisely like a perfect example of what you were trying to say, and, and I learned about it. So thank you. Um, now you wrote another piece for Five Thirty Eight uh, titled "Time for the End of the Team Gymnast" that I just loved, and I think everyone loved. Um, and it, in it, you detail how the U.S led the global downward shift in terms of decreasing the age of elite gymnasts. And then it was not so much led by the Soviets or the Russians, like has kind of been typically assumed. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I was kind of wondering, and I had many, many questions in in this one question, but I think I'm going to just go to the point. What do you think are like the stakes for understanding this history in terms of understanding that the U S saw this trend when it comes to confronting America's role in kind of the sports abusiveness or kind of this culture of abuse that, that has emerged? Um, okay, so I think, you know, again, this is um, a revelation. The reveal comes from one Miss Dr. Georgia Servin. Um, so, you know, <laughs> um, and, you know, she, you know, had in her books or details, like how 
you know, this conventional wisdom, the, the popular narrative is that like, there was Olga Korbra in 1972, she was 17. And in 1976, Nadia was 14, and she wins the gold medal. And then all the gymnasts, you know, um, became prepubescent and were children, right? Like, that's the narrative that gets fed a million times. It's the narrative I was fed until, like, a little bit, like, when I worked on my own book, I was aware that the age declines actually started in the 60s, but I wasn't aware of the American role. So, like, Georgia has greatly added to my... Georgia has taught me something about a subject I thought I understood and knew pretty well. And, and, but I was really excited when she told me, cause I interviewed her. I interviewed her before I finished reading the book, which is a bad, um, bad, bad, bad work professionally speaking, but I just didn't get around to finishing it. And when she told me about it, I was got so excited. Cause I was just like, Oh my God, like this is a huge revelation right like I was like you realize that like this is massive and she was like yeah she knows she's she's smart um so but like but yeah I didn't have to tell her that like her work is good she knows it um but but the thing about it is is that it's important because it's it's similar to you know the for the question about Simone and the vault valuation it's important to know this history properly because we have to understand how things actually happen now how we say they happen right because if we if we decide that like well we don't like young gymnasts right like or we think that there's there's problems here we have to know how we got here so we don't actually get here again so before I really address the full war aspect of it I want to talk more about the amateurism and the capitalism aspect of it now Thankfully, you know, the Olympics isn't strictly for, you know, there are no amateur rules anymore. So back when the Americans are sort of trying to figure out how to compete with the Eastern Bloc countries and their very well-trained female athletes, right, who, you know, had, you know, basically, I don't want to say, I don't know for certain you can answer this, but like had at least similar levels of support when compared to the men, you know, in terms of their training, right? And in the U.S., we had these amateur, you know, they and they and the Eastern Bloc countries, you know, didn't really abide by the amateurism rules, which is fine by me because, again, I don't think that was those were like you know elitist rules anyway. You know, the idea of amateurism in sports. So like, go right ahead. But like, they they were you know in the U.S. like nominally. Sorry, I'm like like some of these again. It's like some of the going back to the doping as well. It's like some of these things are just like these are rules and they're not like you know God's moral law. You know, like these are rules that are made for like specific reasons and they can be unmade. And if you break some rules, then you're not a bad person, you know, um, you know, but like, but we tend to view it as like, they're bad. They didn't follow the rules. We're good. We kept our athletes in poverty, you know, um, but we followed the rules. And that's sort of the other thing is if we're going to, under, we under, one of the things that Georgia points out is that like, there's really no support for women in the West in sports, sports is treated for women as more of a hobby, right? Like, oh, something you do as, as, as opposed to a vocation. So it was very hard for women in the West to like train full time and, and which they needed to do in order to compete against these very well-funded, well-supported athletes from the Eastern Bloc countries. So, you know, the next best thing they went to was the very young, you know, you know, athletes who had the trappings of professionalism, meaning that they're, rooming, their board, their food, their every all their basic needs of their lives are taken care of because they're children and they're living at home, right? And so that's part of how there's a lot of factors I don't want to attribute, you know, all to one thing, but that's part of how the Americans sort of lead the way here. So if we 
don't want to end up back on that path, we have to be like talking about things like funding athletes, right? Funding them properly, right? The way we got there is we didn't fund them. And so we looked for a shortcut and we found children, you know? Um, so if we don't want to end back there, we have to be honest about how this happened. And there's, you know, and, and the decreasing age isn't entirely due to that, but it's one of the factors, at least in the United States. So that's A. And B, in terms of the abuse stuff, abuse stuff, that's, sorry, I didn't mean to minimize it. <laughs> it's much more serious than stuff. Um, but in terms of abuse in gymnastics, again, like I've seen, you know, this narrative of the outsiders came, they brought their mean ways with them. And then we, the pure Americans, were corrupted, and that's why we have abuse. Now, Marta and Bella Curley are 100% answerable for what they did. And what they did was really, really fucking terrible. But they're not answerable for what everyone else did, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think what we're trying to do is sort of project it, um, all this abuse, you know, the win at all cost onto these outsiders, like, like as though... Americans don't want to win at all costs. Like, pretty sure that's like kind of an American thing as well. So, and if we want to really root out um, abusive actors and also change abusive systems, we have to be honest about how they came to be, you know? Um, and I, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to, you know, not just point the figure at, you know, the outsiders who came and and who did legitimately awful things, right? I don't want to like say that they're being unfairly accused, but they're sort of, we're we're putting all of the blame onto them so we can avoid taking a look at ourselves and seeing what we, you know, what Americans did. And, you know, so people I've interviewed, like I've noted in the story, it's, um, you know, Kathy Rigby. I mean, this is in the, I'm not sure which of the 538 stories, um, and, but like, you know, Kathy Rigby, who is a, the first American world championship medalist who won her world silver in Ljubljana on the balance beam when she was 17 in 1970. So two years before Olga Korba comes on the scene at 17, where we sort of date this youth wave, our very first world championship medalist is 17, two years before, earlier. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like, how did that get lost in that narrative? You know, <laughs> like we forgot that because we were already had so many teens on the team. It wasn't exactly surprising. She, you know, has talked later. She's been very open and honest about dealing with an eating disorder. And that starts, you know, certainly before Olga Korba and before Nadia and very obviously before the Carolis come to the United States. So, and, you know, um, Jennifer Say has talked about, like, witnessing abusive behavior in the late 70s, you know, in her career, you know, seeing it at meets. Marsha Frederick, the first um, U.S. woman to win a world title in 1978, has um, come forward and, and has, you know, said that her, her coach had sexually abused her during this time. And again, 1978, so before the Soviet, before the Karolis arrive in the United States, they, they immigrate here in 1981. Um, so, yeah, so they're, they're like, we had a lot of problems before the Karolis arrived, you know, and um, I, and I wrote about this in the Texas Monthly piece um, about the Karoli podcast, you know, and the question we, rather than like asking how did these outsiders change us, the question we need to be asking is, why did they fit in so well? 
Like, why did they, you know, and they, and there was resistance to them, but it wasn't really over their methods. It was over the fact that like, they were, ta- they were stepping onto what people considered other coaches have considered their turf, right? You know, they were coming here, they were setting up shop, they were in some cases, you know, um, attracting the best gymnastics talent in the United States, who were already the best, you know, and so but they were going to be the ones to take them to the Olympics. So they'll get credit because the, the coach that takes the athlete to the Olympics tends to be the one that gets credit for their careers, you know, regardless of how little time they might have spent with that coach, you know? And so, but they weren't, there wasn't really that much noise about their methods. It was more about like, you are taking our best athletes and claiming credit for them, you know? Um, I mean, there was certainly a lot of that around Mary Lou Redden um, and her coach, her former coach in West Virginia. So. So that's the thing is that like, why did they, cause they spent more of their coaching careers in the United States than they did in Romania. So they're just as American as they are Romanian or technically Hungarian, you know, cause they're ethnic Hungarians. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I, that's the other thing of like things that like my minor pet peeves. I was like, we've told the Crowley narrative so many times and we just never it's not that it matters that much but it's like why do we never say that they're ethnic hungarians that that that's because we also view the eastern bloc countries as monoliths and we don't see that their own little divisions you know in there mm-hmm.